Chapter Twenty of Dwellers in the Hills by Melville Davison Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Twenty On the Art of Going to Ruin. The sound reached the summit of the hill, and then we heard it clearly the ringing of horseshoes on the hard road. They came in a long trot, clattering into the little hollow at the foot of the abutment to the bridge. We heard men dismounting, horses being tied to the fence, and a humming of low talk. We listened, lying flat beside El Mahdi and the cardinal. It was difficult to determine how many were in the hollow, but all were now afoot but one. We could hear his horse tramping, and hear him speaking to the others from the saddle above them. A man with his back toward us lighted a lantern. When he turned to lead the way up the abutment into the bridge, we caught a flickering picture of the group. I could make out Lem Marks as the man with the lantern, and Malin behind him. I could see the brown shoulder of the horse and the legs of the rider, but the man's face was above the reach of the light. It was perhaps Parson Pepper's. They stopped at the sill of the bridge, and the man with the lantern began to examine the flooring, and the ends of the logs, set into the stone of the abutment. He moved about slowly, holding the lantern close to the ground. Malin stopped by the horse. I could see the dingy light now moving in the bridge, now held over the edge of the abutment, now creeping along the borders of the sill. Once it passed close to the horse, and I saw his hoofs clearly, and his brown legs, and the club feet of Malin, and the gleam of an axe. They were on the far side of the river, and the howling of the water tumbled their voices into a sort of jumble. The man on the horse seemed to give some directions, which were carried out by one of them with the lantern. Then they gathered in a little group, and put the thing under discussion. Lem Marks talked for some minutes, and once Malin pointed with the axe. I could see the light slip along its edge. Then they all went into the bridge together. The tallow candle, struggling through the dingy windows of the lantern, lighted the bridge as a dying fire lights a forest. In a little space, half-heartedly, with all the world blacker beyond that space, they stopped at the bridge-mouth on our side of the river, and Marks carried the lantern over the lower end of the abutment. Then he called Malin. The clubfoot got down on his knees and held the light over by the log sleeper of the bridge. I could see where the bark had been burned along the log. I heard Marks say that this was the place to cut. Then the man on the horse rode out close to Malin and bent over to look. The clubfoot raised his lantern, and the rider's face came into the play of the light. My heart lifted trembling into my throat. It was Woodford. I grabbed for Judd, and my fingers caught the knee of his breeches. He was squatted down in the road with a stone in his hand. Woodford nodded his head, gave some order which I could not hear, and moved his horse back from the edge of the abutment. Malin arose and picked up his axe. Marks took the lantern, trying to find some place where the light could be thrown on the face of the log. He shifted to several positions, and finally took a place at the corner of the bridge, holding the light over the side. Malin stood with his club feet, planted wide on the log, leaned over, and began to hack the bark off where he wished to take out his great chip. 
I could hear the little pieces of charred bark go rattling down into the river. Malin notched the borders of his chip, then shifted his weight a little to his right leg and swung the axe back over his shoulder. It came down gleaming true, it seemed to me, but the blade, turning as it descended, dealt the log a glancing blow and wrenched the handle out of the man's hand. I saw the axe glitter as it passed the smoked glass of the lantern. Then it struck the side of the bridge with a great ripping bang and dropped into the river. I jumped up with a cry of, The dwarves! The swing of the axe carried Malin forward. He lost his balance, threw up his hands and began to topple. I saw the shadow of the horse fall swiftly across the light. Malin was seized by the collar and flung violently backward. Then Woodford caught the lantern from Marks and came on down the abutment toward us. He rode slowly with the lantern against his knee. The horse, blinded by the light, did not see us until he was almost upon us. Then he jumped back with a snort. Woodford raised the lantern above his head and looked down. Bareheaded, in Roy's roundabout, I was a queer-looking youngster. Judd, with old Christian's leather cap pulled on his head and a stone in his fist, might have been brother to any cutthroat. Stumbled upon in the dark, we must have looked pretty wild. Woodford regarded us with apparent unconcern. Quiller, he said, as one might have announced a guest of indifferent welcome. Then he set the lantern down on his saddle-horn. Well, he said, this is a piece of luck. I was struck dumb by the man's friendly voice, and my resolution went to pieces. I began to stammer like a novice taken in a wrong. Then Woodford did a cunning thing. He assumed that I was not embarrassed, but that I was amused at his queer words. Upon my life, Quiller, he said, I don't wonder that you laugh. It's a queer thing to go blurting out, you moving the very devil to get your cattle over the valley, and I using every influence I may have with that gentleman to prevent it. Now, that was a funny speech. I got my voice then. I don't see the luck of it, I said. And that, he said, is just what I am about to explain. In the meantime, Judd might toss that rock into the river. There was a smile playing on the man's face. If it's just the same to you, said Judd, I'll just hold on to the rock. As you please, replied Woodford, still smiling down at me. I'd like a word with you, Quiller. Shall we go out on the road a little? Not a foot, said I. On my life, the man sighed deeply and passed his hand over his face. If I had such men, he said, I wouldn't be here pulling down a bridge. Your brother, Quiller, is in great luck. With such men, I could twist the cattle business around my finger. But when one has to depend upon a lot of numbskulls, he can expect to come out at the little end of the horn. I began to see that this Woodford, under some lights, might be a very sensible and a very pleasant man. He got down from his saddle, held up the lantern, and looked me over. Then he set the light on the ground and put his hands behind his back. Quiller, he began, as one speaks into a sympathetic ear, there's no cement that will hold a man to you unless it's blood wetted. You can buy men by the acre, but they are eye-servants to the last one. A brother sticks, right or wrong, and perhaps a son sticks, 
but the devil take the others. I never had a brother, and, therefore, providence put me into the fight one arm short. He began to walk up and down behind the lantern, taking a few long strides, and then turning sharply. Doing things for oneself, he went on, comes to be tiresome business. A man must have something to work for, or he gets to the place where he doesn't care. He stopped before me with his face full in the light. Quiller, he said, and the voice seemed to ring true. I meant to prevent you getting north with these cattle. I hoped to stop you without being compelled to destroy this bridge, but you force me to make this move, and I shall make it. Still, on my life, I care so little that I would let the whole thing go on the spin of a coin. His face brightened, as though the idea offered some easy escape from an unpleasant duty. Upon my word, he laughed, I was not intending to be so fair, but the offer is out, and I will stand by it. He put his hand in his pocket and took out a silver dollar. You may toss, Quiller, heads or tails, as you choose. I refused, and the man pitched the coin into the air, caught it in his hand, and returned it to his pocket. Perhaps you think you will be able to stop me, he said in a voice that came ringing over something in his throat. We're three, and Malin is a better man than Judd. He is not a better man, said I. There is a way to tell, said he. And it can't begin too quick, said I. Done, said he. At it they go, right here in the road, and the devil take me if Malin does not dust your man's back for you. He spun around, caught up the lantern, and we all went up to the level floor of the abutment at the bridge sill. Lem Marks and the club foot were waiting. Woodford turned to them. Malin, he said, I've heard a great deal of talk out of you about a wrestle with Judd at Roy's tavern. Now I'm going to see if there's any stomach behind that talk. I thrust in. It must be fair, I said. Fair it shall be, said he. Catch as catch can, or backholds, and he turned to Malin. Backholds, said the clubfoot, if it suits Judd. Anything suits me, answered Judd. The two men stripped. Judd asked for the lantern and examined the ground. It was the width of the abutment, perhaps thirty feet, practically level and covered with loose sand and dust. There was no railing to this abutment, not even coping along its borders. I followed Judd as he went over every foot of the place. I wanted to ask him what he thought, but I was afraid. Presently he came back to the bridge, set down the lantern, and announced that he was ready. There was not a breath of air moving. The door of the lantern stood open, and the smoke from the half-burned tallow candle streamed straight up and squeezed out at the peaked top. The two men took their places, leaned over, and each put his big arms around the other. Malin had torn the sleeves out of his shirt, and Judd had rolled his above the elbow. Woodford picked up the lantern, nodded to me to follow him, and we went around the men to see if the positions they had taken were fair. Each was entitled to one underhold, that is, the right arm around the body and under the left arm of his opponent, the left arm over the opponent's right, and the hands gripped. 
it is the position of the grizzly, hopeless for the weaker man. The two had taken practically the same hold, except that Malan locked his fingers, while Judd gripped his left wrist with his right hand. Judd was perhaps four inches taller, but Malan was heavier by at least twenty pounds. We came back and stood by the floor of the bridge, Woodford holding the lantern with Lem Marks and I beside him. Malan said that the light was in his eyes, and Woodford shifted the lantern until the men's faces were in the dark. Then he gave the word. For fully a minute, it seemed to me, the two men stood, like a big bronze. Then I could see the muscles of their shoulders contracting under a powerful tension as though each were striving to lift some heavy thing up out of the earth. It seemed, too, that Malan squeezed as he lifted, and that Judd's shoulder turned a little, as though he wished to brace it against the clubfoot's breast, or was troubled by the squeezing. Malan bent slowly backward, and Judd's heels began to rise out of the dust. Then, as though a crushing weight descended suddenly through his shoulder, Judd threw himself heavily against Malan, and the two fell. I ran forward. The men were down sidewise in the road. "'Dogfall,' said Woodford. "'Get up.' But the blood of the two was now heated. They hugged, panted, and rolled over. Woodford thrust the lantern into their faces and began to kick Malan. "'Get up, you dog,' he said. They finally unlocked their arms and got slowly on their legs. Both were breathing deeply, and sweat was trickling over their faces. Woodford looked at the infuriated men and seemed to reflect. Presently he turned to me, as the host turns to the honorable guest. "'Quiller,' he said, "'these savages want to kill each other. We shall have to close the Olympic Games. Let us say that you have won, and no tales told. Is it fair?' I stammered that it was fair. Then he came over and linked his arm through mine. He asked me if I would walk to the horses with him. I could not get away, and so I walked with him. He pointed to the daylight breaking along the edges of the hills, and to the frost glistening on the bridge roof. He said it reminded him how, when he was little, he would stand before the frosted window panes, trying to understand what the etched pictures meant, and how sure he was that he had once known all about this business, but had somehow forgotten, and how he tried and tried to recall the lost secret, how sometimes he seemed about to get it, and then it slipped away and how one day he realized that he should never remember, and what a blow it was. Then he said a lot of things that I did not understand. He said that when one grew out of childhood, he lost his sympathy with events, and when sympathy was lost, it was possible to live in the world only as an adventurer, with everything in one's hand. He said a sentinel watched to see if a man set his heart on a thing, and if he did, the sentinel gave some sign whereupon the devil's imps swarmed up to break that thing in pieces. He said that sometimes a man beat off the devils and saved the thing, but it was rare, and meant a life of tireless watching. From every point of view, indifference was better. Still, he said, it was a mistake for a man to allow events to browbeat him. He ought to fight back, hitting where he could. An event, once in a while, was a strangely coward. Besides that, if destiny found a man always ready to strip, 
she came after a while to accord to him the courtesies of a duelist, and if he were a stout fellow, she sometimes hesitated before she provoked a fight. Of course the man could not finally beat her off, but she would set him to one side, as a person with whom she was going to have trouble, and give him all the time she could. He said a man ought to have the courage to strike out for what he wanted, that the shipwrecked, who got desperately ashore, was a better man than the hanger-back, that a great misfortune was a great compliment. It measured the resistance of the man. Destiny would not send artillery against a weakling. It was something finer to fight when the lights were all out. I would not understand that. Men never did until they were about through with life. But, above everything else, he said, a man ought to go to his ruin with a sort of princely indifference. God Almighty could not hurt the man who did not care. Then he gave me a friendly direction about the cattle, to put them on his boundary on our road home, bade me remember our contract of no tales told, and got into his saddle. I watched him cross the bridge, and ride away through the hills with his men, humming some song about the devil and a dainty maid and I wish that I might grow up to have such splendid courage. His big galleon had gone down on the high seas with a treasure in her hold that I could not reckon, and he went singing like one who finds a kingdom. Then Judd called to me to get out of the road, and a muley steer went by at my elbow. End of chapter 20